overtime has given the Cleveland Crunch a 17-15 win in game four of the 1994 MPSL championship. And the Crunch has beaten the St. Louis Ambush three games to one. And this place is bananas. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody. How's it going? My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, it's uh, it's Good Seats. Good Seats Still Available. That is our curious podcast journey each week into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you tremendously for joining me and us in our little excursion down memory lane and uh, we are excited to bring you the uh, second part of our uh, two-part interview with uh, the great uh, uh, coach extraordinaire of uh, many a soccer team uh, in the uh, in the United States over the years and a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame he uh, his name is Al Miller and uh, when we last left you uh, we were pretty much in the midst of Al's career uh, as head coach of the uh, Dallas Tornado, uh, sort of late 70s. I think we're talking about 1976 to about 1980 or so. And um, a few more snippets to wrap up there, but uh, uh, stay tuned for this uh, second part of the conversation uh, as we get into some interesting little nooks and crannies, some of which have frankly never really been explored before, certainly not been publicized before, one of which is the uh, uh, incredibly interesting story of the Calgary Boomers, uh, the one-plus-year wonder, I guess, of the North American Soccer League, and maybe a little indicative of uh, a number of the franchises in the NASL. As uh, you know, for every Tampa Bay Rowdies and New York Cosmos and Seattle Sounders and Portland Timbers, Minnesota Kicks, etc., uh, you know, there were teams like the Calgary Boomers uh, in the uh, early '80s, um, late '70s too. I mean, it was just sort of a random assortment of uh, teams and franchises that came and went. Uh, but the Boomers' uh, story is an especially interesting one, and, and Al sort of lived it uh, very viscerally, and we'll sort of hear some of uh, his musings about that, his recollections about that. We'll get into uh, a little bit of a backstory uh, to what we explored a little bit about in the, the first part of our interview. If you haven't listened to it, of course, please, by all means, go back and find uh, episode number 70 and hear the part one of this interview. Uh, but uh, the... Um, the Philadelphia Adams story is not complete without uh, understanding a little bit uh, about the 1974 winter uh, adventure uh, that was the indoor uh, excitement and game uh, or uh, against uh, a team from the Soviet Union. Uh, Al gets into that story, and it's very interesting because it was also, if you uh, you know, as we look back, and we've had a little bit of a, some conversations about this in some previous com- uh, episodes. Uh, this was essentially the birth of the major indoor soccer league, albeit a few years before it actually fully launched. I was in the audience that that night uh, at the Spectrum in Philadelphia watching the Philadelphia Adams uh, play a very exciting game. And I just literally discovered some YouTube footage with no sound. Uh, I urge you to check that out. We'll try to put a link to that on our, our episode number 71 that this is. Um, it really was the birth of the indoor game uh, and the, uh, the modern day version. And um uh, a uh, a real uh, beginnings, if you will, of the major indoor soccer league. Um, we get into that. And uh, as you heard in the beginning of our show, we even get into later uh, indoor soccer years uh, with the uh, Cleveland Force and then, of course, the Cleveland Crunch. And that's the, the audio that you heard there was from 
uh, just the manic uh, uh, level of excitement at the uh, Convocation Center in, in downtown Cleveland uh, when the Cleveland Crunch uh, won the uh, National Professional Soccer League MPSL indoor title against the St. Louis Ambush in 1995. And Al Miller was the general manager of that team uh, for a good part of uh, the 1990s, that entire decade. Uh, the Crunch went on to win uh, three uh, NPSL titles uh, during uh, Al's tenure and uh, also uh, was in the finals, I think, for another three uh, uh, trips as well, uh, falling just short. But uh, a tremendous way to cap uh, a legacy career uh, as a professional coach uh, and general manager. Uh, and we get into those stories and, frankly, a whole bunch more uh, with our guest Al Miller uh, part two of our conversation uh, in just a couple of seconds. So please stay tuned and uh, you will enjoy. Uh, I uh, uh, virtually guarantee. Uh, let's see. Promotionally, let's talk about uh, Audible, our friends in the audiobook world. They are the, you know, the biggest uh, Audible, uh, audiobook, Audible. Audible is the name, of course. Audiobooks is what they do. Uh, they are the biggest audiobook purveyor on the planet. Uh, over 180,000 titles. And uh, isn't it high time? Uh, that you stop listening to me drone on about how great they are and give it a darn trial for yourself. Audibletrial.com slash good seats. That's the place to go to get your free one month uh, trial of the service. And of course, a free audiobook download. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. You pick the genre, you pick the title, you pick the author, you pick the subject. It's something's going to be there for you. Guaranteed. Um, you can cancel at any time. Uh, you give us a little love by giving the, them a try through our link. And uh, I uh, also uh, just uh, recently uh, understood this. Uh, once you download the book, it's yours to keep. So even if you cancel the service, you get to keep that audiobook for as uh, long as your device lives. And uh, if you're a slow reader, uh, uh, sorry, a slow listener, I guess, if that's a thing, uh, you can uh, take your uh, sweet time uh, and not necessarily worry about uh, the meter running, shall we say. So again, audibletrial.com slash good seats. Get your free one month uh, trial of the service. Get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And don't forget that that audiobook is yours to keep, even if and when you cancel the service. So thanks for giving it a try. And we also uh, encourage you to give a try and bookmark to sportshistorycollectibles.com. Sportshistorycollectibles.com. That is the place to find fun and exciting memorabilia from all kinds of sports and leagues and teams, uh, many of which are no longer with us, a bunch that actually are, perhaps they were previously incarnated, uh, but uh, I guarantee you will find stuff. And there's new inventory there just about every week. And uh, our friend Dean Mitchell and uh, his team are uh, all putting all kinds of uh, rich photography of these items on that site. And even if you don't buy anything, it's, uh, it's just fun and uh, interesting to look at. But uh, we believe uh, that you will ultimately find something. And I, you might find some Cleveland Crunch stuff in there. You certainly can find some Cleveland Force stuff in there. Uh, Dallas Tornado, which we talk about with Al Miller. Calgary Boomers, not so sure, because that was such a small slice of the NASL. But uh, heck, give it a try. Give it a look. You never know. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Use the promo code GOODSEATS. Yep, that's the promo code GOODSEATS. At checkout, you will get 15% off all of your purchases uh, at Sports History Collectibles. Dot com. Okay, we are done with the promotional stuff. We have uh, hopefully set the table very nicely uh, for the second uh, and concluding part of our conversation with uh, National Soccer Hall of Famer, the coach, Al Miller. Here's our chat. 
Give me some sense of the league. You mentioned sort of the Cosmos a couple of times, and, and we've, we've talked about sort of the, the, the pluses and the minuses, shall we say, of that team and, and, and what it brought to the to the league and, and you know, the, the prices, if you will, that, that ultimately maybe got paid uh, because of that uh, approach and that sort of star spangled, not star spangled, but star, you know, powered, uh, uh, you know, big money kind of franchise approach. What, what was... Give me a sense of the league at that time, because obviously it's when it was growing, burgeoning, 24 teams, you know, sky seemed to be the limit. Um, as a coach uh, of a very uh, solid team and arguably uh, just at the precipice of of winning it all yet again, um, give me a sense of what of what the league had, had become uh, at that point uh, and, you know, your feelings about it, uh, good and bad. Well, uh, I thought it was a tremendous league. I mean, you talk about competitive. I mean, here I here I am. I'm coaching against Franz Beckenbauer, Johan Cruyff in Los Angeles. I mean, come on, these are the greatest players in the world. Gerd Muller, uh, Nistel, Ace Nistelenkwe, who I still think is one of the greatest players that ever played in the league. Uh, Kubias in in Fort Lauderdale, and 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 Gerd Muller. I mean, these are the these are the world stars. That, that I'm coaching against. And every game was so competitive. Uh, I mean, it, was, it took every ounce of my imagination and coaching ability and acuity to try to compete in that league and try to put a team together that could compete in that league with a restricted budget, which Lamar insisted on, right? Now, did my budget go up from 1976 to to 1970 absolutely it did but it went up slowly it didn't go up rapidly some teams it went up rapidly they were paying big transfer fees for players uh which which was was you're never going to get back uh and and as a result i mean it, it i thought the league was tremendous the cosmos were such a wonderful image for our league because they were they were traveling around the world on their world tours, playing some of the greatest teams in the world and kicking ass, you know? It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful, the image they had for our league. And, and so back in those days, I mean, the sky was a limit. You could, you could get just about any player to agree that he'd like to come to America and play because that – that's the one thing that I thought the Cosmos did for the league. The, the bad thing they did for the league is that they had an unlimited budget. We didn't. And they had great revenue stream. I mean, 77,000 people in New York is a lot of gate revenue. We didn't have the television revenue uh, to support paying players gigantic salaries uh, and no league in America has ever has ever uh, succeeded without television revenues you can't live on just gate and 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 sponsorship alone you can't get big sponsorship dollars without television and so television was killing us uh, we uh, we had local deals but they weren't they weren't financial deals and we didn't have a national TV revenue stream, which the MLS has done beautifully. 
I, I give them a lot of credit for what they put together in terms of their economic packages. And I, I don't know any of the, the, the dollar figures where the teams are making money, losing money. I don't know the answer to that. But I know back in my day, as the, as the player budgets increased, we did not have the revenues to go with it. And we didn't have the maybe one of the, the, the lack of insights was that we did not have the expertise in our front offices. Uh, we were poor boying it. You know, our ticket salespeople were young kids, you know, that were enthusiastic about soccer, but weren't real professional salespeople. We didn't have real professional sales plans, marketing people, et cetera, et cetera, except at a few clubs. And and you needed to have all of that put together uh, to to succeed. We didn't have that, so it was a, it was a it was a bottom line issue. It wasn't the sport. The sport was being well received. It wasn't the sport. It was it was the economics. We did not have enough revenues to support our expenses, and. That's a that's a formula for disaster, and the disaster was that the league folded. Speaking of revenues, give me a sense of what um, what playing in Dallas was like in terms of the crowds, and and I know there was a, a bunch of different sort of stadiums over the history of the team. Did you have to switch a couple of stadiums during your uh, almost? Six I months? did. Uh, well, I, I and I and I I would say that I would would probably be partly. Uh, uh, enthusiastically responsible for the decisions we made. When when I first came there, Lamar had this dream. I think everybody that he talked to, uh, uh, and certainly I did. I mean, I said to Lamar, "How do, how do you expect to sell this sport if you're playing in a in a seventy thousand seat stadium?" And you're only getting 18,000 people to a game. You can't get any atmosphere. And we're being, we soccer people are being subjected to the criticism of the media because we're not drawing what American football draws. So when we're, when we're playing in Texas Stadium with 30,000 people, uh, we're, we're thinking, oh my God, that's a huge crowd for a soccer game in Dallas in those days. And the media is saying, oh my God, they're failing. And the fans that were coming saying, they're failing because look at all those empty seats out there. So uh, it, was, it was a really difficult time. Uh, and so Lamar, Lamar listened to people. That's one of the beautiful things about this man. He, was, he, was, he loved to talk about things. And I, you know, I said to him, you know, my dream was always that we'd have our own stadium, built a soccer stadium for our size. Well, he convinced SMU to take their practice football field, uh, uh, which, which was where they originally started playing their games until they went to the Cotton Bowl. And... He, he talked them into letting him renovate it and turn it into a little soccer stadium. And it held about, I'm going to say 20,000. I don't know what the exact number was anymore. 
but we were selling that place out. Uh, we were doing good, and we had a great atmosphere. We'd score a goal, the cannons would go off, the fireworks would go off, and it was it was a great atmosphere. And he had hired Dick Berg, who was probably one of the great promoters of all time for for soccer. And Dick was coming up with all kinds of ideas to attract people, curiosity to get them to the games. And so we were doing really, really well. And we finally got to that stage where we thought we were better than what we were. So we, we, we came up with the idea of moving into Texas Stadium. And we went back to Texas Stadium where they had originally played. And it was a big mistake, I think, now looking back in retrospect, because, yeah, we got more people. We didn't have 20,000 anymore. We were getting 30,000. But guess what? Uh, we were we looked like failures. And I left there in 70 to go to Calgary. And uh, I had a disagreement with the GM there. I didn't like him. I, uh, uh, he was interfering with with my efforts, etc. And he was trying to promote his own. He wanted to bring his own guy in and etc. etc. And so when I left, they had a disastrous season. I think they lost 30 games or something like that. And uh, it was a disaster. And I think Lamar was humiliated because for the first time ever, they weren't competitive. And uh, he folded the team. But the league, I thought, back in those days was great. I just, I, I think what we lacked is exactly what MLS has done, which is to build their own stadiums. Now, I mean... It, it depends on who you get compared with. If you get compared to hockey and basketball, uh, MLS soccer is overachieving. If you compare it to football, uh, it's underachieving. There are very few sports uh, that can knock the NFL close to off its pedestal, right? Uh, but it's an interesting comparison, right? Because you look at sort of the average uh, stadium sizes, uh, albeit with a few exceptions, you look at uh, the uh, the number of teams and the the national and and uh, uh, two country footprint. I mean, it seems like all the right sort of roots are there. Um, I, I think it becomes uh, more interesting when uh, you know you look at other sports and their sort of heritages and their sort of uh, fan bases as well. I, I think it's also an interesting time because it's not. I think it's 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 competition from lots of different things where maybe. 20, 30 years ago, it was a much sort of, uh, I guess, more clean uh, and understandable sports landscape or entertainment dollar comparison. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I I, ad, I really admire what the MLS has done. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, Alan Rothenberg uh, uh, coming to Cleveland to talk to me when I, I was a GM of, of an indoor franchise there. That's where I finished my career. And and he came and asked if he could spend some time with me. And we went to lunch and I uh, spent three hours talking about it. And he said, Al, if you could build the perfect league, what would it, what would, what would you eliminate or what would you add from the, the NASL? And I said, I'd eliminate the owners because they're, they're a menace. You know, they, they all uh, bitch about the referees. They think they all should win every game. And, and, uh, they 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 hire all these the the people they want to spend all their money on players not any money on the 
on the front office, etc. I said, I really, I really think that it would it would be a hell of a league if you didn't have owners. Well, if you think about it, one of the things that he did was he created the, you know, kind of a a new type of league where owners didn't have so much influence. And and the other thing I I we talked in in great length about was stadiums. And I said, you know, I don't think you could, I don't think you're going to be successful if you're going to be playing in football stadiums. And the only one that I think really is successful is Seattle. They're they're still playing in in a football stadium. Well, that, Orlando Atlanta, did Atlanta quite too. well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Atlanta, yeah, Atlanta's doing well. Yeah, they I say they had seventy two thousand a game a couple weeks ago. That's fun. That's a great atmosphere down there. I I went up there and and saw one a game and it's a great atmosphere. Yeah, it seems a little. It, 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 look, we get into it sort of. It, it seems to me that you know the central ownership thing, the sort of owner operator thing, right? Uh, does it uh, uh, does it is it? And we've talked about this with many guests about many different sports, especially the challenger leagues and sort of the models and all that kind of stuff, right? Does centralized ownership with sort of weak uh, individual franchise oversight uh, or or control uh, is that better than say? A purely franchise model, right, which, you know, has immediate uh, financial, uh, shall we say, gratification, but, you know, then is harder to sort of tame and get people to sort of be on the same sort of uh, uh, wavelength when it comes to uh, bigger strategic issues and, and league survival and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, MLS, I mean, there's so many different sort of nuances to it, right, because the quality of play, right, constantly under attack. Uh, and maybe rightly so, or maybe not. I mean, you know, how do you compare it to a Bundesliga or a or, or a La Liga or, or a Premier League for for that matter? I mean, it's 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 kind of apples and oranges. And you know, do we ever get there? Don't know. Um, and you know, would having individual uh, ownership with uh, more unlimited budgets be a better thing to maybe sort of bring more talent and and bring the the the, the quality of play up? Don't know. Uh, but then again, we've got history, right? We talked about the Cosmos for the last couple of minutes, right? Uh, that you know that could be a, 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 a an easy an easy uh, path to uh, destruction as well, right? So I, I'm yeah, no yeah. easy answers. Well, I I think I, I always remember one of my teammates, one of my German teammates, uh, wonderful player, once told me, and I and he brings this up every time we get together. Now he said when he grew up in Germany. If you're a boy, if you're a male, if you don't play soccer, you're you're a nobody. Every boy has to play soccer. It doesn't you don't have to be good. You just have to play. Because that's what German boys do. Right? Uh I think that could be said about many countries. That's not true in America. It might have been true maybe back in my childhood about baseball, but it certainly wasn't true about soccer and it still isn't true. So that's a difference in the culture of the country. And the second, and the second thing is that this country that we live in, the great country of America, uh, is, is, has multifaceted, sports successes that you're competing against. So I believe that 
soccer has to take a meaningful place in the, the sports landscape. And ultimate goal should be, you know, let's get to be number one. Let's get to have massive crowds, et cetera, et cetera. But here, here's my thought. The most important ingredient, I think you can look at, at the, uh, the, the timbers as a good example, or maybe the sounders. The way they market it, they have developed real fans, fans that relate to the team, fans that relate to their city. They have pride in their team, their city, et cetera, et cetera. And so they are passionate fans. And that's what makes soccer. The, the, I, I'm watching, I've watched every game of the World Cup. I can tell you some of the games put me asleep. The play is so routine. But there are some games that just make me crazy. But they are few and far between. The majority of the games are pretty routine, pretty defensive-minded, not a lot of good finishing, a lot of great playing, not uh, individual brilliance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, a lot of a lot of games like that. But there are some that that have those ingredients. But you can't put a league together based on all those factors and expect every game to be exciting. The way it becomes exciting is it becomes your team. When I built Hartwick College, it was the students' team. They were passionate about it. It was the community's team. They were passionate about it. So when they came to the game, winning was incredibly important. It was their they were winning. It wasn't the team playing beautiful soccer or having great stars or whatever. It was their team. It was their stars. They made stars. And I think that's still true to this day. I don't, my friends that I play golf with who didn't grow up with soccer, they think soccer is boring as hell. Uh, they really think it's a boring game because they don't have any attachment. A, they don't have any knowledge of the game, so they can't, they can't see the good qualities that I see in a game or you see in a game. And secondly, they have no attachment to, the, to any of the games. Now, if, if they're Italian and, the, and the Italy's playing, then boom, they, they got an immediate attachment. So, you know, that's what the Olympics are all about. We want our kids to do well or our teams to do well in the Olympics. Why? Because it's America's team. So I, I feel very strongly that the, the, the ingredient that you have to get in your, in your city is you have to build passionate fans who want your city to win, your city's team to win. It doesn't matter what the hell the players' names are, what nationalities they are, or anything. What matters is that it becomes their team. And the Seattles and Portlands and Atlantas have done a hell of a job putting that together. And I think the Cosmos were the prime example of putting that together back in their day. This might be a good opportunity before we get into Calgary, because that's uh, it's an interesting story, I'm sure. Um, what about the, the rules changes that the NASL uh, experimented with and, and put into play uh, in its attempt to, I guess, make it more, quote unquote, attractive to that 
maybe dispassionate or uninterested or frankly naive uh, American fan. Uh, the the 35-yard line, the uh, the overtime and the shootouts, um, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, the 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 sudden death uh, when it came, comes to overtime. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? We talked to Paul Gardner way back when, uh, I think our sixth or so episode, um, and he had some interesting takes on on what things made more sense. The points uh, system, for example, uh, I'm curious as to what your thoughts were uh, about that. Did that help hinder or maybe neutral uh, its effect in the in the NASL? Well, I I uh, I'll start with the rules. I I, I really think that. The NFL has done something that probably no other sport has done, and that is they continuously change rules to to help sell the game. And and uh, if if economics and getting fans to the game uh, is is important, which I think it is, then that that's important. Unfortunately, soccer is a world game. And every time you change a rule, uh, it causes confusion. It causes maybe an economic problem. For example, there was always talk about making the goals bigger. And somebody once told me, well, if you, if you, well, it was a FIFA president, Sepp Blatter. Uh, uh, that was brought up at, at, a, at a session I was at with him. And he said, oh, my God. He said, can you imagine the economics that it would cost all the countries, 223 countries, to change all their goals, it would be a, a phenomenal cost. We could never consider doing that. I never thought about it from a cost factor. I was thinking about it from the attraction of the game factor, you know? And so, you know, you got, you got to look at it from the people that, that are responsible for the game, that built the game, Etc. Etc. I personally think FIFA rules are antiquated. Uh, I think the way they handle discipline, with re- with players yelling at, ref- at referees or surrounding them and etc. is bullshit. I think that could be avoided. I don't think that's attractive. I don't think flopping is attractive. I, I don't think I don't think uh, some serious foul play should be should be let go. Uh, uh, if you've been watching the World Cup, the new foul now is not not to go over the top in a tackle and and maim somebody. The new foul is this, is to stomp somebody on top of their foot and uh, while well, in their planted foot. That's a really serious foul that could cause a lot of and does cause a lot of it, bad injuries. We shouldn't be allowing uh, the thugs to take out the skilled players. We should, we just shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't allow it to happen. We have to, we have to make the penalties more severe. Uh, the, the mugging that goes on on, on corner kicks, it's, it's a facade. The, what the, what the, what the uh, FIFA did in the world cup is a facade. They said they were going to eliminate it. They weren't going to allow it. The referees have all these stoppage of actions and on corner kicks, uh, using all these hand signals, and how many? How many have been called? One or two. And and when you look at the slow mo replay of corner kick, my God, guys, it's a wrestling match. Uh, so I think that 
FIFA is way behind in rule interpretation and rule change for the benefit of the game. I think they're scared. They're 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 traditionalists. They're they're like saying we don't want air conditioning because we never had air conditioning. That's bullshit, you know. So uh, that's my feeling. Uh, I just I just really feel that that somehow or another they need they need to uh, they need to change. But I also understand that the game in itself is beautiful. And when it's played by two beautiful teams that concentrate on playing the game at its highest level versus thuggery, et cetera, et cetera, it's a beautiful game. Well, when the... Yeah, well, when the NAS, with the NASL though, with their point system and 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 the various rules with the offsides, the thirty-five yard line, et cetera, did, did you think that that was? I mean, obviously pushing FIFA's buttons way back when, right? Almost in the vanguard, you could. Oh yeah. Admit. Well, I I'll tell you, to this day, I believe that our shootout was far better and more attractive to fans and more fair than a penalty kick shootout. I thought that was a hell of an idea. I really did. I mean, I, I remember the Vancouver uh, Cosmos game when Beckenbauer juggled the ball down and, and, and popped it over the goalkeeper's head. It was the most freaking magnificent thing I think I've ever seen. And and the creativity that players came up with and goalkeepers came up with, I thought it was brilliant. It was great drama, sports drama. I loved it. But, you know, if, if penalties are the answer, then that's the answer. I don't think any player feels good about losing a game on penalties. Any coach, any, any fans, you just don't feel right. Damn it, we played to a tie. Uh, they didn't beat us. Uh, that's how they feel, you know. Uh, so I, I thought that the 35-yard line I wasn't 100% sold on personally. It was an attempt at getting rid of this offside problem that seems to be in existence. It takes away a lot of goal-scoring opportunities. Um, I thought the point system was was an outstanding idea. And obviously, uh, you know, a lot of leagues have changed their point system since that time. But when you th- when you're talking about the Olympics or the World Cup, and group play down to quarterfinals, semifinal. I mean, it does. It just doesn't get any better than that. It's it's awesome. So soccer's done a lot of things on the world level, right? It just it's just a, a little weak and changing. And one of the things that I that I seriously hate in the game is the flopping, and uh, and the serious foul play. I. I I know I, I know it could be eliminated with with the video uh, abilities we have nowadays if players were starting to get fined for for some of the thuggery they they do during games it could be eliminated All right just when it was getting interesting let's uh let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt shall we Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting 
to allow us to pay some of those bills. And uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking and also a free one month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one month trial of the Audible service. And interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from. And there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, Uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, Give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening. And Back to our conversation. All right, well, let's, let's get to a couple of last sort of uh, areas here, because I, I don't want to let a couple of these topics go away. And I, I've been I've, okay. hugely generous with your time, and I, I appreciate it. But a couple more little stories I need to get out of you, I think. Um, Let's talk about Calgary. Uh, how does that happen? Uh, Nelson Scalbania, an interesting character for a number of different reasons. How do you go from Dallas to uh, to Calgary? And don't tell me there's a nonstop flight. Uh, there's probably more of a story than that. <laughs> uh, Rudy Schiffer approaches me at 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 a meeting in in uh, Washington D.C. when the when the, the Washington diplomats were the host of the soccer bowl in 1970 I guess it was and so uh, he approaches me and he says uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret uh, Memphis is being bought by a guy in in Alberta in Calgary Alberta and he's hiring me as a general manager and one of the things I told him was that I could I could bring you know the best coaches in the league, I could hire one of them. And so he wants, he wants to meet a couple of them and I'd like you to come up. And, and of course uh, I said, no, I'm not interested in moving to Canada. Thanks a lot, Rudy. And I ended it at that. Rudy called me once or twice every week after that. 
And joke. Now, keep in mind that was in August. In November, or, or sorry, in October, he he's still calling me, and but now he's getting desperate. And he he makes a suggestion. He says, "Just come up for an interview. Just fake it. I I I need your help." And jokingly, I said to him, "You know, Rudy, I love hunting." And some of the best big game hunting in the world is in Alberta, Canada. If you fix me up with a hunting trip for a moose hunting trip, I'd probably take you up on and come up and do your interview. Guess what? 48 hours later, he calls me and said, it's all arranged. You're coming. I go up. I go on a moose hunting trip. I met a guy that's still one of my best friends today, one of the best hunters in North America. And uh, we go on a horseback moose hunting trip together for four days. I come back and I go to the interview, and I, I have to admit to you that I had zero intention of moving to Canada. Nelson Scott, I, I go to the uh, Atlanta Flames office, and Cliff Fletcher, who was the GM of the Flames, was in Philadelphia in 1973 with the Flyers. And I got to know him. And Cliff said to me, what the hell are you doing here? And I go, I'm up here for an interview for the soccer job. And he says, and, and Nelson Scalbania owned the Flames. And he said, well, let me tell you, let me give you some advice. If you want to say anything to him, make sure you do it in the first five minutes because you may not get more than that. So we're sitting in there in his conference room having a cup of coffee. And in marches Nelson Scalbania and his uh, his uh, lawyer. He's a very impressive looking guy, tall, thin, runner type, beaded uh, beard, a little pointed beard, kind of a beaded uh, nose, and just really looks fit. And he walks over, shakes my hand. He's got his briefcase. He puts it on the uh, on the uh, table, and he said, "I read all about you. Thanks for coming." He said, look, I, I only have a few minutes. Uh, uh, I'm, i got to catch a flight. And with that, he opens his briefcase, pulls out a yellow legal tablet, tears two sheets off, and he writes something across the top of each one of them. And he hands them to me, and he says, one of these is, I'd like to know what it, what it would cost me to get you here. What do you want personally for me to hire you as my coach? And second, the other page is, what would it cost me to get into the playoffs and win the championship in three years? Make out a team budget. And he said, you know, go for it. And with that, he walks out of the room. That was my interview. And Cliff Fletcher is laughing his ass off, okay? And, and so I sit down and I wrote down every goddamn thing I could think of that would possibly be in a contract. That I wanted. And I wrote down a phenomenal player budget so that I could go buy top class players and pay them well. He comes back in a room and he was a, a real estate buyer and so he was a speed reader. He reads through this thing I had written up and he goes, Okay, fine. He signs his name on both of them. He says, you're my coach, congratulations, right out to the airport with me. Now, 
all my instincts wanted to say, well, wait a minute, I got to discuss this with my wife. But when I, when I'm looking, I'm on, I'm on a get rich program here. I'm going to, I'm going to make a phenomenal amount of money for the next three years. I'm going to take it. And I go, okay, let's go. So I rode out to the airport with him. He and his lawyer in a limousine. And on the way out, we made two stops and he purchased like $30 million worth of office buildings. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy is incredible. Okay. And he was. He was a top class mover and shaker real estate guy who just knew how to make money. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to me, he was overextending himself. Anyway, we put the team together. The team had phenomenal success. We we ended up uh, beating Seattle in the playoffs and, and Vancouver, and we, we win our division, and we're going to go play Fort Lauderdale. Unfortunately, Billy Graham had uh, uh, his uh, week in our stadium. We couldn't play a home game, so we the league – forced us to play two games in Fort Lauderdale because it was a home and away, and we lost. I go to soccer ball in Toronto, and when I come back, my office is locked up. And there's a guard. There's an armed Canadian guard there. I go, what's going on? And he goes, well, uh, Mr. Scalbania has been arrested. I go, what for? He goes, tax evasion. I said, well, look, I, I got to get into my office. I'm the coach of his team. I got all my paperwork in there. I got to get in there to get some things. He said, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. To this day, I still never got any of those files. Or my, all my coaching files, everything was gone. Well, I, I learned that we hadn't been paying our bills. Guess who was signing all these bills when we were on the road? I was. I had the I had the company credit card, and I'm paying for rental cars, for buses, for hotels, for meals, etc. I'm signing off. We had a traveling secretary, but I had to sign off because I, I was an officer of the club. So who do they come after? They come after me. I hire a lawyer. He says you got to get out of Dodge. You got to move to. He gave me three cities to move to that had a treaty with Alberta, Canada. One of them was Dallas. And that's where I moved to. The guy I went on a hunting trip with me hired me to start a new company, a branch company of his in Dallas, which I did. And I became president of that company, and that was my job. That was my experience in Calgary. That was the best team I ever coached in the pro league because we had about seven uh, Bundesliga first-teamers that could play. And we, uh, that was a tremendous team that we had put together. Where was the league office in all of this craziness? The league, the league office at that time was in New York. No, no, but I mean in terms of like uh, helping with the situation and, and the ownership and is going to jail and all that kind of stuff. I mean, were they well, just... Well, the, uh, that was at the time when, you know, the, the teams were folding like uh, cards, you know, uh, Peter Pocklington, who was Scalbania's uh, uh, buddy in, in, with the Wayne Gretzky deal, etc., uh, was in the town next next to us, Edmonton, 
and they were getting ready to fold up as well. I mean, it was just one of those, it was one of those eras where, where teams were coming and going like crazy. And so the league was in a lot of disarray. They were, wisdom was trying to hold it together. And I don't, I don't think the league had anything to do with Calbania. The, the actual end of Calbania's story is the government hired him, gave him an office and a secretary, and he paid them off. He, he made enough money to pay them off and pay his back taxes. Unfortunately, I didn't get paid. I had a guaranteed three-year contract, and instead of making money, I lost money. I sold my house within uh, 48 hours because the, the real estate market was incredible at that time. I actually made money on it, but the bank kept my check. <laughs> kept the, at the closing, the bank kept my check. I didn't get my I didn't get my payment till like four months later, from my house. So it was a, it was a it was a nightmare for me, a learned lesson, that I guess I wasn't supposed to get rich through soccer in my lifetime. I don't I, I think few have uh, in the in the American game for sure. But that's a that's that's an incredible story. And I you know uh, the Boomers only lasted to what that one season. Although they did play, you, you you actually got started indoors, right? Did you were you was that your first sort we of? Started, we started. Yeah, we yeah started indoors. We. We did very well. I, I brought some Argentine players in, and they were terrific. A lot of them stayed here, and and played in the MISL then back in back in the MISL early days, and were were star players. Uh, yeah, we had a we had a wonderful indoor team. Well, and and arguably, and we didn't talk about this when your Philadelphia Adams stuff, but maybe this is a, a good opportunity to do so. You were actually involved in what is uh, historically known or seen as sort of the beginnings of the pro version of indoor soccer, at least the modern day version, uh, when you were the Adams in '74. So you yeah. you had some some experience well, kind of pioneering that. It, game, you know? Interesting how this whole thing happened. Tom McCluskey was a real estate guy, first, last, and always. He grew up in it with his father and. He became an, an, an I mean, a, a real estate developer magnet. He built half of downtown Philadelphia. Uh, anyway, uh, Tom's idea was when the job was over, fire all the staff and hire them when the next project became. And and so he fires the general manager, gets rid of a lot of the staff, and uh, makes me the general manager after my first year there when we won the the championship. And I told him, I said, I'm not qualified to be a GM. I can't do both jobs. And he said, Oh, don't worry about it. I'll get you some help when the new season comes. And I, I kept telling him now's when we have to sell tickets. And he goes, no, don't worry about it. So I was a general manager from, from uh, August after we won the championship or September, early September, uh, uh, throughout the winter uh, during our off season. And in, in some time in the winter, this empresario from Portugal calls me and he said, I, I represent the champions of Russia. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could put a game in Philadelphia, the, Americ the American champions, Philadelphia, your team, versus uh, uh, the Russian Red Army team, which was uh, the champions of the Russian League? And I said, yeah, I would, except that we got like three feet of snow in our stadium right now. No one would come to the game. 
And he goes, oh, come on, we've got to put this game together. And I said, the only thing we do in the winter here is play indoor. He said, do you have a league? And I said, no, but there have been games played, and cetera. He said, why don't we do that? And the league at that time, Phil Woosom, was trying to promote the idea of an indoor league where the clubs would play indoor so that their players could play year-round and we could pay players year-round. And he had come up with a set of rules, and they actually had a, a demo game in Atlanta. And I said, you know what, maybe we could do that. And so I called him back and I said, hey, here's an idea. We'll put it on in our arena in Philadelphia, da-da-da-da. I'll set you a set of rules, which I did. And we ended up playing a game. We had 14,000 come to see the Russians play the Americans. And it was a hell of a game. I mean, it was a tremendous game with a great atmosphere. Our kids overplayed. They weren't nearly as good as the Russians back in those days, but they played great. And we were, we hung in until the end of the game. But Earl Foreman and Ed Tepper were at that game. Earl Foreman was the guy that that was involved with the ABA. And, and so anyway, Earl Foreman comes to me in the locker room and he says, when, when is this league going to start? And I go, I don't think it is. This, is. this was just an exhibition game. And he said, oh, my God, you have a gold mine in, in your hands. Why don't you start a league? And I said, why don't you start? Just jokingly. He did. That's how the a major indoor soccer league got started. And when it got going, it was hot. It was drawing great crowds and doing extremely well. And I actually ended up spending the rest of my career because uh, when the MLS came in, you know, there was kind of an NASL non, uh, let's, let's eliminate those personalities. Let's start our own new personalities. And so I was persona non grata and I wanted to stay in the game and, that was the only professional thing. So I went in, I went into management. Well, uh, I spent the rest of my career in management. Yeah. So let, let's uh, maybe we can round the uh, the curve here then. So you know when you get to um, to Tampa Bay, right? You uh, you essentially again your first your first gig there at, with the Rowdies in '82 uh, is the indoor thing. And and what happened then? You you won the championship, didn't you? Yeah, we won we won the championship. We beat beat uh, Montreal in Montreal. And that was a time right, where the MISL had gotten underway in 78, 79, right? And uh, so clearly the, uh, the the sleeping giant, I guess, or whatever it was at the time, the NASL, recognized, hey, wait a minute, we were the ones who kind of birthed this sport in the, in the beginning anyway. We should get a taste of this and and, uh, and bring it back to its roots. And, and so it was a very interesting time if you're a fan of, of indoor soccer at the time. I remember actually growing up in, uh, in northern New Jersey at the time, we uh, had uh, the uh, embarrassment of riches, and I put riches in the in quotes, right? We had actually two teams in the uh, Brendan Burns slash Meadowlands Arena, right? With the New Jersey Rockets, didn't even last a year, although yours truly had a season ticket. Don't don't ask me why. And the Cosmos, right? So it was interesting to see sort of the two different sort of flavors and versions uh, of the indoor sport. And and interestingly, it seems, and you're you're alluding to, right? As the NASL sort of whimpered away in '84 or so, or '85. Uh, the indoor version really became kind of the only, if you will, pro game in town. And, and ironically, uh, became uh, your sort of uh, your career destination uh, for the uh, for the years that followed. Yeah, I, I mean, I had, I had a, a very difficult decision to make. 
I was in I was in Tampa with the Tampa Bay Rowdies, and and Lamar lawyer called me up and said, "Hey, I, we need to talk." And he said, "We've sold the team, and they're bringing their own coach." And it was Rodney Marsh, and I understood that whole scenario. They wanted him as their coach, and so I was I was out of the, I was out on in the cold. Uh, Lamar took care of me financially, paid my contract off. He was loyal to the end with me, but I was I was out of a career, and my choice at that time was to go to a minor league, which which was kind of the American Soccer League, or the M or the MISL, and I had heard some nightmare rumors about coaching in the MISL because owners were didn't understand and they would come in and interfere with coaches or threaten coaches in the locker room and all that stuff, and I didn't want any part of that. So I, I was debating, what am I going to do with the rest of my career? I need a job here. Uh, I want to stay in the game. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to have to go coach in the MISL. And, or I can go back to college. And I had two absolutely nightmare experiences. I was actually offered the job. I was invited to the press conference to announce my hiring for the Las Vegas team in the MISL, and needless to say, the the owner fired the general manager who hired me and denied knowing anything about me coming out for a press conference. And so my my agent at that time, my lawyer, and I didn't, didn't show up for the press conference because they never sent us the airline tickets. And when we called to find out why, they told us that the GM that hired me was fired. That was a nightmare for me because I thought that was my next step, and I would make the best of it. And then I was told that I was called by alumni of the SM Southern Methodist University, and they wanted me to come there as a college coach. And you know my ties and roots in Dallas, I loved it. And uh, SMU is a great university, and I thought I could really, you know, reignite my college career and retire as a college coach. I would be okay with that. And then that got screwed up and the the assistant athletic director said well you didn't know anything about it. who called me and uh, and so it was kind of two bang bangs on, uh, on top of my career there after losing my job with the rowdies and I, my lawyer calls me up and said look i have a friend uh, who owns the team in cleveland and he really needs somebody to come up and run the club would you be willing to do that let's go up and talk to him so we did and uh, the guy hired me as a GM, and that's how I got into the MISL. So before we get into the Cleveland Force, uh, the, the, a quick newsflash. So you were almost the head coach of the Las Vegas Americans, but uh, it yeah. didn't come to be. Right. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Um, so what, what are the Force, though, in the MISL? Right? Obviously, the Force uh, was a... Um, uh, this is we're talking about basically the mid '80s, right? '84 ish to about '87, '88 ish. Yeah, this was '85 when I went there, and, and uh, the owner was Bart Wolstein, who had who had built the uh, shopping centers for that house Kmart. Uh, he built all the Kmart's around the country, and obviously made a lot of money, and was a very wealthy man, and uh, a Harvard lawyer, very bright guy, very bright business guy, self-made. Uh, business millionaire, and his son was a, a lawyer as well, graduate of Michigan Law School, and very bright young man. And so 
they had a big company called De- Developers Diversified, which later got on the stock market, and uh, we're doing extremely well with that. And so he got involved in soccer, and he hires me. Okay, and uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, the good the good news was that that he was a brilliant businessman. So from an economic standpoint, we were one of the few soccer teams in American history making money. And and all I added to it was was my savvy in the game, et cetera, et cetera. But he was way too personal and wanting to make every decision. And unfortunately, never really, I felt never really utilized my expertise. He was wanting to win a championship more than anything in the world. And I knew he'd never win it with his style because he was involved he kept uh, getting involved with coaching, et cetera, and it just wasn't working. Anyway, he folds a team, fires me, and then folds a team. And I, that's when I went to the, uh, to the Federation and, and was the general manager of the national teams uh, for a year in Colorado Springs. And then I get a call from Cleveland saying that the there's a new owner that wants to start a franchise back in Cleveland. Would I come in and talk to him, which I did. He coerced me to come there and, and run the team, gave me part ownership in the team, et cetera, et cetera. And I was there for 10 years. And we, we had a lot of success, did really well. And then, unfortunately, uh, another divorce story. He was going through a divorce and had to sell the team. And Miller was out in the cold again, ah. and that was the end of my career. I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm finished with soccer. That's it. I spent 40 years in it. I've had a great run. That's that's enough." So uh, to clarify on that, right? So MISL, MISL goes away, sort of at the end of the uh, 80s, and then the um, the National Professional Soccer League, MPSL, which uh, right. uh, started really as a minor league to the MISL as the old AISA. Uh, which exactly. is interesting that winds up it becomes sort of the successor. Um, maybe just a real quick question about sort of the, the the difference between the MISL, which was obviously went for the jugular, was very successful, especially in the earliest of years. I mean, you had folks like the St. Louis Steamers, you know, were li- literally the most successfully attended indoor sports team across all of North American sports, hockey uh, and basketball included. Um, but the MPSL, right, was uh, probably a little... I don't know. A little less so, maybe. Is that fair to oh, say? Oh, it was my, it was minor league. It was it was they were playing in small arenas, uh, uh, small budgets, small ownership groups, uh, mostly groups that owned the teams, and not a lot of promotion, etc. Not very big crowds, uh, small player budgets, etc. And then when the MISL folded, uh, they kind of converged. And the NPSL moved up a notch, and the MISL teams moved down a notch. And when I'm saying that, I'm talking budgets. And we're at Cleveland. You know, we we uh, uh, we came in we came into the league, and we started to dominate the league. It was pretty much us in St. Louis and and Baltimore back in the, in those days, and then Kansas City came along and and had a good team. So it was kind of the four of us. I mean, it was a very competitive league. It became a really competitive league and the NPSL moved its standards up big time, but it was, 
it was never the same big operation as the MISL. Still, that said, though, uh, you know, in the MPSL, uh, you mentioned 10 years, uh, according to my records, uh, you were in uh, you helped guide the team uh, as a general manager. I'm sure you also had some uh, some say in uh, player personnel and, and some coaching ideas and stuff uh, to six championship series, three of which you won. Um, so not a bad coda, right, for, you know, a, a very yeah. lengthy and successful professional uh, career, both outdoors and in. Well, Tim, it was it, it was my final box that I really needed to check. And that was to take a franchise and, and do it the Al Miller way. And what I did basically is I, I borrowed and stole from every great club that I, that I had met along the way. Uh, the Liverpools, the Bayern Munichs, the, uh, the uh, great teams in, in, in Brazil at, and Argentina, etc. Everybody had something good about them. And I took all those good things and I had this vision that if you have enough passion about something, you can make it happen. I've really believed that all my life. It was my secret to any successes that I had. And when I took over that franchise, I wrote down 10 things we're going to accomplish and took my staff on a retreat and, and absolutely hammered them with, this is our project. These are the 10 things we're going to do. And the only one that we didn't check of those 10 boxes was we didn't, we didn't become, uh, we didn't have a big TV contract. Aside from that, we had done everything. We won championships. We, we were the leading uh, uh, producer in, in fans, in marketing dollars, in ticket sales. Uh, we became the premier franchise in the league. Uh, we had the we had the best record in the league. I mean, all the all the things that you would want if you were building a franchise from zero, which I did, and it was it was my last challenge in the game, and I've, I'm very proud of that ten years span. My owner was a was a crazy son of a gun, but somehow between his his economic brilliance and and wanting to win and giving me the lead to go do it. I, I signed all the players. I picked all the players. I picked our coaches. Uh, I ran it like a, like pretty much like a European club, but it was, I did everything. I ran the business side of it. I ran the, uh, everything. I mean, we, I was like a czar, but, uh, we made it happen. And, uh, I had great people working for me, wonderful players. Um, I think that I had an edge up on the league because as a GM with a, the authority uh, to sign players, I knew players. I knew I, I came from the college rank. So the college coaches trusted me. They, they, they told me who the best players were. So when we drafted or we drafted the best players, uh, when, when uh, I was looking for players in the amateur leagues, et cetera, that excelled, I knew all of them because I had played in the New York League, the Philadelphia League. I knew I knew all those those amateur people, and so I, I really was. I had it. I had it pretty connected, and uh, as a result, we had an abundance of really top class players playing indoor soccer in in Cleveland, and 
you always have to have two or three superstars, which I had, and then we we had a lot of other players in our in our roster that would have and later became superstars for other clubs, but when they were with us, they, I mean, we just had dynamite rosters and and we we were very successful. All right, two last questions, I promise. Um, number one, Take your so, time. no, around that time, right? So this is when now, uh, obviously, outdoor soccer seemed to be kicking up again, right? 1994 World Cup, 1996 yeah, launch yeah. of MLS. Uh, were there any, during your time at the Crunch, right, were there any sort of pangs of interest and or, you know, maybe I should get involved in this outdoor reboot, shall we say, Um you know, that was uh, starting to uh, get some traction uh, in the 1990s. Well, as, as you can imagine, the, the owners and the league officers had a tremendous rivalry with indoor and outdoor. The indoor people believed that they had the game. And, and I have to tell you that if I took a thousand, you know, men my age that grew up with football and took them to an indoor game, I could have them fall in love with it much quicker than I could with an outdoor game. And so the indoor has a certain mystique in for a, from a spectator point of view and sponsorship point of view that, that the outdoor game didn't have back in those days. Uh, I think that landscape is changing uh, dramatically, but uh, the indoor rivalry was there. So at no time could I ever be employed in an indoor game, indoor league, and extol the virtues of outdoor soccer. I just couldn't do it. My heart was always with outdoor. My heart was always with the national team. My heart was always with, with the outdoor league. I wanted to be coaching. I missed it. I went through a hell of a career crisis when I when I uh, first moved to Cleveland as an administrator I went through a probably a two three year career crisis uh, which caused all kinds of havoc in my life got a divorce during that time just was a very unhappy camper to say the least uh, because I I was I was I was bitten by the bug the game got me the game was always inside of me still is to this day, although I tell people I've now put it in my rearview mirror because so many of my friends uh, chased these jobs down and were angry because they weren't in the, MI, uh, in the new league, MLS, etc. I put it all behind me and walked away. And I'm playing golf and enjoying life, and I, I don't think all of them are or, or did for a lot of years because they weren't able to turn turn away from it. But I had 40 years. I had a wonderful career. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And obviously recognized at that time, during that time, by your induction into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. I think that was what, in 1995, you got the red jacket? 95, I did. It was, uh, it was wonderful. I got, I got, went in on the first ballot, which I'm very proud of. And, uh, you know, I, I I went, I took a friend of mine to the Hall of Fame when it was still in Oneonta, New York, and there I was on a wall, the same wall as Pele. He was just down away from me a little bit, 
And I, I said, my God, you know, this little kid from Pennsylvania uh, lived his dream, and look what happened. Look, look where he ended up on the wall with, with Pelly, who he worshipped as a player, and saw him play in the, the World Cup in Mexico City, which was my first introduction to the World Cup in 1970. All right. Well, so now that'll set us up for our uh, our sort of our last sort of question. You hinted at it before, but I, I, I guess I want to get some definitive statement here from you on. I guess what you would sort of characterize as the state of the game, both domestically, you know, as uh, the pro game, MLS, uh, USL, uh, the ownership structures of such, as well as maybe the U.S. going forward uh, on the world stage after having taken a step back by not making this year's uh, World Cup tournament. Uh, If anybody's uh, qualified to opine on uh, the current and maybe future state of the game of the sport in this country, it's probably Al Miller. Well, I don't know if that's true, but uh, uh, I, I, can, I certainly have opinions. I think that, that Garber has done a great leadership job with the MLS. And I think uh, surrounded by people like Lamar Hunt and, and, and the other owners, he's, he's done a real, they've done a really good job. And the one thing that I'm, I'm happy to see is that there's money being thrown against the wall for the game. And that's, that's wonderful. Uh, because money money does do things. Money does make things happen. And I think that the game is in good hands at the at the pro level. Uh, I think, uh, could would I make some changes? Of course, I, I have some op- different opinions uh, uh, about the structure of the the league for American players, et cetera. But but I give them I give them hats off. Uh, uh, compliments, uh, 100% compliments on them building a league and getting all these stadiums built, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm very happy with with the progress of the game. It's further than I ever thought I would see it in my lifetime. Uh, as for the federation, same thing. Uh, they've thrown a lot of money at it. Uh, I personally think that they should get out of the volunteer president See, I think they should have professional staff running it. Um, uh, I, I, I don't like the, the political election process. I, I don't think it, it's, it's right for the game. Uh, not that I don't like the new president. Uh, I, I don't know really uh, what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. I think Galati was, you know, was a, a bright young man who really put a lot of energy and effort into into moving the game forward could have could have somebody done it better probably i don't know but uh but anyway i i just don't like the political process involved in the federation i i would much prefer uh you know ha- having paid personnel make the decisions just like garber does um as far as far as as the college game and high school game I think it's uh, it, it's serving a purpose, but not a big one. Uh, as much as I love the college game when I was working in it, uh, you know, it's it it certainly doesn't do. A, I don't think it does a lot. Three month a year season for the for the game itself for players. It's just it's just a place where players can get educations through the sport and I'm, I'm all for that. I think that's great. 
but in terms in terms of the the status of the game uh, with our national team, I'm every bit as disappointed as uh, as anybody uh, that we didn't qualify to fire a coach in the middle of the season that you had enough confidence in in bringing and giving this really important job to was insanity. I, I, I will never agree with that decision. I think I love Bruce Arena. I think he's a good man. Uh, I think he's a great coach. I think he's done a lot for the game in America, but so this is not a take on him. This is just, I think you don't fire coaches in the middle of the season, in the middle of qualifying. Uh, I don't think Spain made a wise decision in firing their coach before the World Cup. I think people will second-guess that decision forever. And I'm going to second-guess Klinsman. I think Klinsman was a very highly qualified guy that gave us a good image. Uh, The only thing I didn't like about Klinsman, he was an American. And I don't know if if he could feel the pulse of America the way I could feel it or Bruce could feel it or or all the other American coaches that have have lived and died with the game. I don't know if he can feel the same pulse that we feel. Uh but we're we're not there yet. We're our players are 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 not good enough. And I think that you know you have to have passion. I think Russia prove beyond any doubt that if you play with passion, you can take uh, uh, average players and do something great with them. And I think they did it in the World Cup. I think they proved it. I think Iceland proved that. Uh, But um, I think to be a world power is a really formidable challenge that nobody has yet come up with the answer. I don't believe that there's any man alive that has a magic wand that can turn average players or average teams into world champions. I think that it's all about uh, how we go forward, and I don't know what those answers are. I've always, I've always thought that if we could send a guy to the moon – we could find a way to bring in great thinkers, not just soccer guys, but great thinkers to help us how we could send a team to the world championship. It's never been done, never been tried. Uh, We've done everything else and we have yet to succeed. I think we've grown exponentially, but we're, we're, we're a long way from being world champions. And I'd like to give that a shot. I'd like to put a consortium together and see if we could come up with some great thinkers who who might come up with some ideas that we could use to take this complex situation, this huge, vast country, this large number of youth players, how can we convert them and make them world champions? I don't know how you can do that. If I did, I'd be selling it. But I sure would like—I w- I sure would like to see us be world champions before I die. I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, you gotta—you gotta, you gotta uh, 
You got to think it, uh, you know, with uh, in eight years, right, we've got the chance to actually host this thing uh, once more. Um, what an opportunity to perhaps uh, be in a position to do that, right? We, we see sort of the pixie dust that the home nation uh, often gets. Uh, we saw the effect of it in 94. And um, you'd think with a couple of uh, a couple of moves like you just suggested that uh, maybe, you know, the uh, the stage is set, if you will, for 2026 to perhaps you know, uh, perhaps at least be in a position to kind of at least credibly say that we could possibly be doing such. I maybe it's still. A dream. I think it could be our best chance, Tim. I think it could be our best our best chance ever in our history to do it. It would be to do it then, and that gives us eight years of preparation. You know, uh, if, if you look at Belgium, they're just going through a good cycle of players. I mean, they have a and France, they have a great cycle of players right now. It's it's not it's not something that's going to last forever. They just have a really good cycle. I think Germany uh, uh, system has lasted a long, long. They've been the most enduring because I think they're the best organized. They really are well organized as a federation. Uh, I think Brazil, the, their their spirit, their love for the game, uh, they have so many poor kids that dream about being professionals that become professional. I mean, they've got something special going down there, but look, look to how they're struggling right now. I mean, they're not, they're not the, the superpower they used to be. It's, 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 it's become a world sport. It really has. And, and there's a lot of teams that, that can beat you at any time. I think, I think America can, I think we can compete and I, I want so desperately to, to see us host that, uh, hoist that uh, Jules Rimet trophy. That would be wonderful. Well, what's been wonderful is this uh, conversation, Al. I appreciate your taking all this time and um, uh, dodging a golf game or two, uh, to, uh, maybe two, right? The, the length of this, but uh, we'll probably break <laughs> it up in two episodes. But I, I thank you so much. This has been really amazing. And, and you know, yours is a, a, a real uh, a, a study, right, in the history of uh, American soccer. I mean, you've been there and on the front lines. I mean, you've been uh, arguably America's coach uh, on a number of different levels. Uh, and uh, I think this has been a, a, a great uh, a reminder of sort of uh, what's uh, sort of transpired in the sport uh, in this country. And uh, hopefully maybe a bit of a taste of, uh, of what is yet to come off of, uh, off of your hard work and, uh, and your back and, uh, and your furrowed and sweaty brow, if you will, of all the work that you've uh, put in over the years. So thank you, Tim. Uh, Tim, uh, I want I want to say thank you for for that comment, but I want to thank you for your work because I think to to bring all this history out and and the people that were part of it. My my great reward is 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 watching the game grow, but really, uh, as you as you get older, you start to realize that trophies and wins are. are are really nice to have while you're working in them because they keep you in the business. But the relationships that you make in the game are what really is important. And I've, I've had so many wonderful players compete for me and play for me and give their best for me. And I watched them grow as young men and get out into the world and make a difference. That to me is my reward. So I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really grateful for what you do for the for the the sport itself and the way you promote history. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. 
Well, there you go. There's a, a, a you know, once again, we uh, we learn a ton. Uh, and uh, it took two episodes to do it, but uh, boy, uh, it was jam-packed full of stuff and, and a whole bunch of things that uh, we didn't know about before. And hopefully you learned and uh, learned uh, as well and hopefully uh, were uh, entertained by the uh, the stories and the memories and the, uh, frankly, the uh, the exciting events of, uh, of a lot of what uh, Al Miller as head coach and general manager uh, over a 40-some-odd year career uh, in the game of soccer here in the United States. And we thank Al tremendously and uh, we look forward to meeting Al in person uh, and maybe perhaps some of you listeners out there in listener land in person uh, coming up this September uh, for the uh, big 50th anniversary of the North American Soccer League, which uh, you heard before in our episode with Jim Trecker. And uh, if you haven't heard that episode, go back. Uh, why don't you do GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and search that episode up? Because uh, Jim, of course, is uh, part of uh, putting that all together. Um, that is uh, in September. It's in Frisco, Texas. Uh, and it is the uh, is concurrent uh, with the uh, relaunch, the rebirth, the reboot, if you will, of the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame in uh, beautiful Frisco, Texas, which is attached to Toyota Stadium there, the former Pizza Hut Park, uh, where FC Dallas plays. And uh, as many of you know, uh, the National Soccer Hall of Fame uh, was previously uh, incarnated in uh, Oneonta, New York, uh, just as a stone's throw from the... Uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame uh, in Cooperstown, uh, but uh, has been essentially in limbo while this new facility uh, down in Frisco, courtesy of the Hunt family, uh, has been uh, uh, constructed. And uh, so it's it's a perfect excuse to do two things. One, regale in the uh, the history of the North American Soccer League and uh, perhaps see some of the uh, uh, the remaining uh, legacy uh, players and administrators and coaches, et cetera, from that league, uh, you know, perhaps in the last grand get together uh, celebrating this league uh, and two, frankly, to uh, delve a little bit deeper into the uh, history of uh, soccer here in this country. And uh, the National Soccer Hall of Fame was a treasure in my mind when it was in Anianta, and I believe it's going to be that plus uh, when it reopens in Frisco. So hopefully we'll see you there. Hopefully we'll see Al there and a whole bunch of our NASL and soccer friends, MISL for that matter, too, because uh, MISL definitely needs to be part of the National Soccer Hall of Fame going forward. Uh, a little something that will perhaps uh, try to bring up in our conversations down there. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll see some of you uh, out there. And again, it's NASL 50th. I don't know if I said this before. The website is NASL 50th, 50th.com. You can find out more about that. Uh, and uh, the way to find out more about us, again, as alluded to, uh, is GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. That's our website. That's where every single one of our little episodes has been posted. Uh, you'll see all kinds of interesting links there and photography. Uh, there are items to purchase or, or uh, recollect around. Uh, again, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. You can search uh, by title, by uh, topic, uh, all the episodes and stuff, and we're always building stuff. You can sign up for our email. You can find our uh, our social media accounts, which are uh, as follows on Twitter, that's at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Facebook. There's a page devoted to our little show as well. Uh, you can find our email address on there, and you can also get onto our email uh, mailing list every Monday to be uh, sure that you uh, don't miss uh, a single episode of this fine little show that we uh, sweat over and toil over each week. Uh, and lastly, never leastly, but uh, we always want to say thank you to our friend Jerry Payne uh, and his friends at Podfly Productions who put uh, painstakingly these little uh, little pieces together to make the show sound somewhat professional or close to it. 
uh, and podfly.net, P-O-D-F-L-Y.net, podfly.net. That's where you can find out more about their services and perhaps uh, to help you in uh, your potential podcasting uh, uh, journeys, uh, sh- should you uh, should you consider such. Uh, that's it for me. I appreciate your listenership as always. Uh, please, by all means, uh, keep your uh, social media tweets and your emails coming. We uh, subsist on those, and we certainly appreciate your listening, and we look forward to another fun-filled episode coming up next week here on Good Seat Still Available. Until then, ta-ta. Ta-ta.